Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I am so excited to bring you this conversation I've just had with John Cooper about his new book, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke, which has been a bit of a, a controversial title, which he talked about. There's so many highlights from this episode. Um, one of the things I think that really stood out to me, I think is going to be so helpful for, for my audience in particular, is John talked a lot about the philosophy of Hegel and Hegel's dialectic and how he is really connecting that with so much of what we're seeing in woke culture, how it's the breaking down of all the categories when it would come to gender, when it comes to sexuality. We talked a lot about, uh, oh my gosh, we talked about everything, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, really jam-packed, fascinating, interesting episode. And I can't wait to bring that to you, but I do want to mention that my new book, The Deconstruction of Christianity, that I co-wrote with Tim Barnett, is going to be releasing on the 30th. So that's coming up in just a few days. And I just want to make sure you know that you can pre-order the book today. Wherever books are sold, you can go to Amazon, you can go to Barnes & Noble, ChristianBook.com, and you can order the book. Once you order the book, you can go to thedeconstructionofchristianity.com, and right there on that homepage, there's going to be a form that you can fill out and put in your receipt number. When you do that, you will immediately receive a link to a free chapter in the book, which is really the chapter that Tim and I feel is the most practical. It's the advice chapter where we walk through different scenarios, different relationship dynamics, and how you might walk out a relationship with someone who's in deconstruction. So I really want to encourage encourage you to get this book. If you're a pastor and you're listening to this, uh, I, I so pray and hope that this book, The Deconstruction of Christianity, will be a wonderful resource for you and for your staff. Um, we are so praying that this will equip the body of Christ, because this book is not the book you're going to give to somebody who's in deconstruction. This is the book that's for their pastors and their friends and their family, their parents, their spouses, because we really want to help you, the body of Christ, understand deconstruction and know better how to navigate those relationships with uh, people in your life who are in deconstruction. So you're going to get that advice chapter for free. And here's the other thing. You're also, if you pre-order between now and January 30th, you're going to get um, free access to the audiobook for 60 days. So you can actually get a head start and start reading it before it even comes out on Audible. So um, really great pre-order bonuses. I'm very thankful to Tyndale for offering those for you. So again, buy the book, then go over to thedeconstructionofchristianity.com, put in your receipt number. You will receive an email with a free chapter and 60 days free access to the audiobook. Really hope that the book helps you and equips you as, as well as John's new book, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. And without any further ado, here's my friend John Cooper. All right, John Cooper. You're back. You're one of my most popular guests, and you have this now going into the world. This is Wimpy, Weak, and Woke, How Truth <laughs> Can Save America from Utopian Destruction. That is a bold title. Glad you're back. 
It's good to be back with you. I'm, I'm turning my Wi-Fi thing off, and I think it's going to be even even better. It's great to be back with you again. Thank you for having me on. Apparently, it's a bolder title than I thought because people <laughs> got so triggered. People were the most triggered, triggered, triggerings I've ever seen in my life. I was like, yeah. Tony, have you even read? So, so here's what I did. I was like, oh, here's what I'll do. I'll give I'll give away the introduction chapter for free, where I where I define what it means to be wimpy, weak, and woke, because everybody's making their own assumptions. I said, I'll give it to you for free. Read it. And if you disagree with me, just send me a comment. And I only had 38 comments, <laughs> 38 comments, as opposed to the 500 comments of everybody yelling at me the day before. Yeah. So it just kind of goes to show you that we really are at a time where people are really quite deceived and they're really quite dug into what they believe about things. They're ready to jump. They're ready to be mad, but they're yeah. not really ready to understand the concepts that they're so very passionate about. Yeah. Well, this is, um, I do want to ask you more about that pushback because I remember back when that was going on, you were saying you would just literally post the title and people would absolutely lose their minds. Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. well, like, well, like, tell us about some of the pushback you're getting, like some of the comments. What was so triggering about it? I know, I mean, some of the wording is strong, but everybody does that to try to make people interested in the topic. And, but it just seems people lost their minds over this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, apparently my wording is always strong and I don't even, I honestly don't even ever intend it. I usually get myself into trouble without even knowing why I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand what's happening. It's like, you know, I set a building on fire and I'm like, all I did was light fireworks in the kitchen. What's the big deal? But I don't even know. And, uh, but the pushback is basically this. It was from the title alone. And they're like, wimpy, weak, and woke. Jesus would never do this. Jesus wasn't mean to people. Jesus mm. never gave people poor mental health by telling them they're weaklings. Um, Jesus never made fun of people who were effeminate. Jesus, it, it's like they jumped to such radical conclusions. And then they're like, and it's got an American flag on it. This is idolatry. It says woke. Oh, and yeah. it's that uh, you hate the poor. Uh, and then, so I would get these comments. They would say things like, yeah, well, I'm sorry if you think it makes me a weakling because I think that as as a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to help the poor, then I guess unfollow, you know? And so yeah. they, they, they were going to these extreme lengths without even hearing, even though I actually went on and I actually explained it in an audio version, then I gave the chapter away for free. But really what you're dealing with are people that, that really don't want to know what you have to say. They've already made their conclusion. They don't like it. And they have a caricature version of Jesus anyway. Yeah. The, the thing that was really hard for me was that it was largely people saying that they were Christians. This wasn't my, because a lot of my followers are not Christians. So a lot of them were kind of like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know theology and I don't really care. Right. It's, the, it's, it's that Christian group that we're seeing split that really feels like this sort of militant seeming Christianity. And I don't go around saying that I believe in militant Christianity, but they would describe me as being militant for some of the things that I would say against abortion or, or, or take your pick. So that's yeah. kind of what we're dealing with. Yeah. And that, that's some great points in there too, because it, it's truly interesting to me that we're in a time that just because you have uh, the American flag in the background of your book, that people immediately, instead of just thinking, oh, why is that there? What does that have to do with things? Well, of course, in the back, if you look at the back, the whole book is about what we can do to save our culture in America. So it makes sense to have an American flag on there. And you say there's no such thing as utopia. It is a lie. It denies the sinful nature of man, the existence of a transcendent God, and it denies God's created order. We must burn utopia to save the world. 
And um, so it makes sense to me that you would have that on there. But I, I love your point about the caricatured version of Jesus. Many years ago, I wrote a blog post, and people can look this up if you want to. It's, it's, did Jesus ever label or exclude anyone? Because I don't know how anybody could read about Jesus in the Gospels and not see that Jesus had some very hard things to say to people. I'm just going to just say some of them because this list is so long, and I looked up each verse and put it all in this blog post. But he called people's, people enemies, pagans, the devil, robbers, hypocrites, thieves, sinful generation, adulterous generation, dogs, pigs, evil man, unbelieving, perverse, foolish people, false prophets, dead, unclean, wolves, blind guides, Satan, perverse generation, murderers, whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers, and cursed. So, I am totally triggered right now. You're hurting my feel. I can't even handle this. I need a break, and I need, I need like a Winnie the Pooh bear blanket. And I need you're you're hurting my feelings saying those things. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a break because I won't go on into all the people he excluded and condemned to hell and all of that. Now, of course, we know that's, you know, that's part of who Jesus was. Obviously, there's uh, there's a fully orbed picture of Jesus in the gospel that basically I think just gets up in everybody's business. I don't think anybody could read the four gospels and not be triggered by Jesus, at least at some point. And that's sort of the point. I think that's that's good because if nothing Jesus does triggers us or makes us feel uncomfortable, then probably we've got a caricatured version of Jesus that looks just like us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll add to it if you don't mind. What I find is that the, the people that are always saying Jesus didn't exclude anybody, they would hear all the lists that you just said, and they would say, well, yes, we're okay to call people that if they're not helping the poor, if they don't like socialism, if they don't like some form of, of redistributionism and collectivism, and if they're not fighting for LGBTQ rights, then Jesus would call them Pharisees, hypocrites, snakes, whitewashed tombs, yeah. excluded from the kingdom of God. They actually don't mind wielding insults. They just have changed. They've, they've cha well, I'm not trying to say that Jesus was running around wielding insults. That's not correct. But in other words, they don't mind using pejoratives and hard language. They don't mind wielding the sword. It's just they want to change who the, the sword is kind of wielded towards. Yeah. And they have a, a different version of basically a social justice Jesus who came to make the world a, a sort of socialistic utopian paradise of, of equity. Yeah. And it's okay to use all those words towards those people, you know? Yeah. So we find that, we find that same debate in the Christian nationalism thing. And I know we're jumping ahead. We're not even talking about the, the book here, but I wouldn't mind saying one political thing if I can real fast, just to sure. make the point just this week, um, Joe Biden went and gave a speech. I can't remember the, the church he went, but at an at at historic black church, he went and gave his speech for presidency where he called Donald Trump a loser. And he's in a church. He says, Donald Trump's a loser. And everybody starts chanting, four more years, four more mm. years. I don't hear the Christian left saying, it's beneath the presidency to use words like loser. Yeah. You know, if Trump did it, they'd all be losing their minds. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't mind using the word loser as long as it's against the right kind of a person. Mm. And I haven't seen uh, Phil Vischer or any David French, I haven't seen anybody say, there's Christian nationalism. Biden's giving his stump speech at a black church, yeah. a Christian church with their uh, parishioners chanting four more years. It's Christian nationalism. The point yeah. is, is that, that there's an incredible amount of compromise happening in the church at large. And because I think traditional Christians, we really want to serve God. We don't want to be idolatrous. 
we're very open to the idea that maybe we've been a little too idolatrous for America. Maybe we haven't been loving enough to the poor. We're very open to that. And because of that, the Christian left is just beating us to death. And, and a mm. lot of Christians are falling for it, but, th- but they, they're not really holding to a true standard. If they did, they would be saying, President Biden, you can't go to a black church opening up your presidential campaign, calling this other guy a loser. That's beneath the presidency, but they, they don't do that sort of thing because they do not hold equal weights and, and measures. That is such a good point. And our friends over at the Center for Biblical Unity, Monique Dusan and Krista Bontrager, have pointed this out many times when they, you will see this all the time. The same people that are, you know, calling, pointing fingers and saying Christian nationalists, Christian nationalists are the same ones that are having politicians do speeches in liberal churches. And it's happening all over the place. And so there's a lot of hypocrisy there, too, because I think, you know, our friend Neil Shenvey has also done a lot of work on this, too, showing that by the definition of Christian nationalism, which, by the way, that, you know, who can define that that phrase? But by, you know, by the typical definition, you know, it's the progressive churches, the liberal churches that are just as guilty or worse. So it's uh, that's that's a good point about pointing that out. I want to talk about utopia, because that is something that, um, you know, and you make a good point here on the back cover of your book. There's no such thing as utopia. It denies the sinful nature of man. How does utopia define the sinful nature of man? And we talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, but I want to really help our listeners understand that there, you know, you can parse out worldviews in lots of different ways. But in in some ways, I think you could say that there's really two. Either you think men are sinful from the inside and sin, you know, corrupt things from the inside out, or you think that men are born good and and get corrupted from the outside in, right? And utopia Mm. plays a part in that discussion. Oh, absolutely. You just nailed it. So if man is born good and and the only reason that that man does bad stuff, so I, I hurt my neighbor. If the only reason I'm hurting my neighbor is because I have been traumatized in some kind of a way, maybe psychologically traumatized or my, I lived in a bad neighborhood. In other words, society did something to me that caused me to lash out. If that's the only reason that, that men uh, and women do bad stuff, then it needs to be the goal of the state to make everybody's life perfect and, and to, to give everything they can to people to make sure they do not get traumatized because if you fix the trauma, then you fix the sin. And then nobody's going to do any bad stuff to their neighbors. And so eventually that will lead us to a some sort of perfected society. So if people don't know utopia, all, all that utopia is is basically the perfect society. No one goes hungry. Everyone has a quality of outcome. Nobody is lacking for food. Um, and be- because of that, what it entails is that nobody d- does sins against their neighbors anymore because all of their needs are met. That's sort of the idea. This is also in political philosophy. If you really want to break it down and say, hey, if somebody's watching, they're like, I don't know about the religious stuff. Political philosophy just breaks it down into what Thomas Sowell calls the constrained uh, vision and the unconstrained vision, which is to do with the sinful nature. If man has no constraints on him, um, meaning uh, what we would call a sinful nature, the fact that we have a bent towards doing unrighteousness, we are born into selfishness. But not only constraints as far as that goes, constraints as far as knowledge we do not have a perfect knowledge of the way things work. We are discovering things all the time. And so we as Christians say, because we do not have a perfect knowledge, we have to trust in God, the creator who gave us his law word. He gives us the word of God so that we know what is right and wrong. And we trust that and we build our lives. But if man has no constraints on him, um, then basically he just needs to keep trying stuff until it finally works. 
This isn't working. There's not a quality of outcomes, so defund the police. This isn't working, so abolish all the prisons. This isn't working, so make sure that we can have eugenics and make sure that we uh, basically don't give birth to anybody with any sort of you know, uh, defect or any sort of disability or somebody. They, well, they're going to – that. Um, what do you call it? I, I, I can't remember if it's – is it Iceland that is – they, I think it's Iceland that says they've eradicated Down syndrome. Yes, it's either, yeah, Iceland or Sweden or something. One yeah. of those two. They just they just aborted, aborted them all, all the babies, yeah. and they went, "Hey, we fixed it. You know, we, yeah. we fixed the problem." So, yeah. um, anyway, that that's the point of utopia. The reason it does not work is because <laughs> we. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. <laughs> we are born because <laughs> it seems obvious, right? <laughs> it does seem obvious. We're born into this world with a nature bent towards sin. You cannot get out of that. Man is going yeah. to look for uh, for a way to, to look out for number one. That's what we all do. So because of that, we have to, to basically make the most of what we can based on a fixed understanding of morality. So that's a long answer. Ironically, as you know, utopia, Thomas More coined the term in his book, Utopia, um, several centuries ago. But the word actually is defined as nowhere or mm. no place. He called it that being like, well, yeah, there is no such thing as utopia, but here's an idea. And that's the irony is we, every time we try to reach utopia, it ends with 10 million deaths, 20 million yeah. deaths. There's a over 120 million deaths from Marxist, inter, Marxist utopian enterprises in the last century alone. But that does not stop the ideologues because it is it's such religious fervor. They're sort of like the people that are like, the end of the world's going to happen in January 10th. And then when January 10th comes and it didn't happen, they go, oh, sorry, we were wrong. It's happening next January 10th. Yeah. And they and they keep they believe in it with a religious fervor. That's sort of mm -hmm. like what utopians are like. Well, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with John Cooper. I want to pop in for just a moment and let you know about our first sponsor for today, and that is Seven Weeks Coffee. I love this company so much. I love it because, first of all, it's wonderful coffee. I'm a bit of a coffee snob, and I love that their coffee is all uh, direct trade. It's better than organic. There's no pesticides. It's certified mold-free, high-quality, wonderful coffee beans. But also, I love that they are unapologetically and vocally pro-life. In fact, their name, Seven Weeks Coffee, comes from the idea that at seven weeks old, you can detect a heartbeat and the baby is the size of a coffee bean. So go to sevenweekscoffee.com and use my code ALISA for 10% off of one item. That's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ALISA. Yeah, that's, I, I, over my sabbatical, I got really into watching cult documentaries and it was just interesting oh, to me. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I have you seen the Mother God cult one? No. Okay, that's the that is the absolute end all wild ride of all the cult documentaries you will ever watch. But like in, in the Mother God cult and other cults that I've kind of been watching documentaries about, that that always tends to happen. There's some prediction. There's something they're expecting to happen. It doesn't happen, so they change the narrative and they still believe. And I, I think that you make a good point there that that's kind of in our nature, but it's because of our sin nature. I mean, even as Christians, I think, I don't know if I can fully make this connection, but we kind of tend toward that thinking in our fallen nature as well. Like we think, oh, well, I, you know, I got hurt at this church, and so I'm going to do home church. And then home church works great for about two weeks until 
people's sin nature starts to manifest. And then you just have people that have sin natures. Then you got problems you have to solve. And it's we, we always want to think that we're corrupted from the outside in, that it's the system, it's the it's the structures that are corrupting. But it's really, it's us. Anytime you get people together, there's going to be problems because we are sinners. And power corrupts, money corrupts, fame corrupts. All those things corrupt us, which is why um, I think the American experiment is so powerful because that's what our founders realized. You know, they realized that human beings are sin. You have to separate. You have to balance the power. You can't give somebody ultimate power because it will be corruptive. And that's what we see in so many other types of government. So, um, yeah, I think we tend to think, oh, if we could just get away from this certain situation, it'll all be good. But the minute you get another person involved, you got two sin natures going to battle against one another and it's good up problems, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, and I know that you, you and I, before we started, we said we're going to talk a little bit about the philosophy of Hegel and yeah. some of the other various things going into this. And it, it might be a good transition because what you just said is it. I mean, here's what we affirm. Anybody that's watching that has a tendency towards utopia or, or you're not convinced yet, here's what we affirm with you. The world is not right. Yeah. Things aren't right. And it is depressing. People don't always... Uh, they don't they don't get what they deserve sometimes the evil prosper and it's depressing sometimes the righteous are slain and it is depressing things don't go you know my mom died when i was 15 years old you know what that doesn't seem fair to me man i want it back i want somebody to fix this issue i affirm that the bible says that god has put eternity in the hearts of men we long for a perfected society we long for a time when I don't have to cry over the loved ones that, that have died and gone before me, I want to be reunited with them. We all long for the time when people don't suffer and they don't starve to death. Yeah. We all want that. That's in our hearts. That is a good thing. So I affirm that in people. But I think that what we're, we had to realize is that there is no way to get around the problem of sin. Yeah. It's there. You have to deal with it. The good news is that Christ has already dealt with that. If you will just have faith and believe it is dealt with, but you have to go through the right measure. And I think that that is kind of a transition, in my opinion, to where do these ideas come from? Why are we trying to build this perfect society? And I think more importantly, Lisa, for our audiences, why are Christians so suckered into it? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get into Hegel because I know that that while you were researching this book and writing this book, uh, you you actually sent me a chapter to review, and it was it was deeply philosophical. This is the thing I hope people understand about you, John, is you're not just some guy with a beard ranting about what bugs you in the world. I mean, you are very well read. Uh, you you are reading the history of philosophy. You're reading the primary sources and kind of pinpointing how we got to where we are today. And I remember taking philosophy at Southern Evangelical seminary. And when it got to Hegel, I remember my teacher saying, Hegel is so hard to understand. I don't even think Hegel understands Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> but but there is something that can be grasped about it that you're tracing really to what is happening in America today. So maybe start with Hegel's dialectic, like help our audience understand what that what that's about and how you think that Hegel's ideas connect to what we're seeing going on in our culture today. Mm. Yeah, I'd really love to. I agree with your professor. Hegel is just a nightmare to understand. Let me start with something practical and work my way backwards just so everybody can wrap your head around this. What I noticed in society that was driving me nuts, I mean, it was driving me bonkers. I'm guessing it's driving a lot of other people crazy too. Have you noticed that everything in our, our society now is a is a sort of mesh of contradictions, meaning 
you look at him and you go, wait a minute, that can't be true. And, and the other thing be true at the same time. But but the same people are saying, actually, a dumb example might be, how come they're calling me a Christian nationalist when all that I want is to celebrate individual liberties? I don't want I don't want to tell you how to live your life, and I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. They are trying to tell us all how to live our lives, but they're calling me the totalitarian. This doesn't make sense together. Another example that I write in the book would be this. How come it's the same people that uh, cannot define what a woman is are also the same people that say that that um, women are oppressed in society. That doesn't make any sense together. You, you can't say both of those things. All men oppress all women, even though we can't define what a woman is. And even though a biological man who says he's a woman can then be treated like a woman and then take a job from an actual biological yeah. woman, which is the opposite of the of the feminist movement. We're actually taking jobs away from women. These things don't make sense together. And and, and you're arguing with people. You're arguing. You're, you go to school or you go to work or maybe your kid comes home from college and you're at the dinner table and you can't make heads or tails with people because they just keep saying opposite things. Why is that? It is traced back to Hegel. Now, I knew that we were living in a very kind of Marxist-inspired time of this us versus them. I understood the oppressed versus the oppressor narrative. But what I didn't understand was where Marx got that from and I knew he was, uh, the way they called him, uh, Hegelian. I knew he was a disciple of Hegel, but I couldn't really make sense of what was going on. So now we go back to, to Hegel. And what Hegel is most known for, and this is going to get in the weeds, but I'm going to make it super easy for people. He's most known for what is called the dialectic. And the dialectic, for simplicity purposes, is this. You state a thesis, then you state its opposite, which he calls antithesis or antithesis. And then you put those two things together and they become something brand new. They become a synthesis. And I used to be like, okay, I don't really quite get that. And I didn't get it until I started reading Hegel's literature and even further back into alchemy and, and um, basically magic, all right? So, so I don't want to confuse people. I'll make it really simple. In magic, what they were trying to do is create the Sorcerer's Stones. If you look back at the uh, of alchemy and these people, so they're taking these various elements and the idea is that you want to take two elements, you want to put them together, and you burn them or whatever it is that you do. And, and while you do that, you also, there's a magic speech involved. And what you're trying to do is take these two elements and you, you create a brand new element where both of the other elements are actually consumed, but they both still exist. So in other words, you are not trying to get rid of one. You're not trying to burn one of them away. You're saying both of these things still exist in unity. Maybe a good example, I hadn't thought of this until now, would be the biblical understanding of marriage. You know, one plus one equals two, right? A man and a woman come together and now they are one. Uh, we are one flesh, but we are still two different individuals. You don't actually lose yourself when you get married, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a good example because I hadn't thought about it until right now, but that might be. So the idea is that all these things come together in unity and perfect harmony. And so Hegel, because he was a, uh, a sort of Gnostic, and we can talk about that or not if you want to, he actually was a, a hermeticist. He believed in a religion called, called uh, hermeticism. But the point is, is that because of that, he believed that all things in the universe are one. 
and all things are leading in the future to a perfect oneness. And so because of that, nothing is false on its own. And if you say, well, that's not true, that's true, that's not true, he would say, no, it's all in motion. Truth is in motion. It is becoming something. And so because of that, everything just needs to wrestle. And so you don't need to look at something and say that's false. Today in the 2020s, you've heard this in your ordinary life. When somebody says, well, you have to get rid of binary thinking. Oh, they, yeah. they are they are using some, that is a Hegelian idea of stop the binary thinking because it's not black and white. Everything is gray because it is evolving into a perfect oneness. And I'll just end with this. If you don't understand why that plays out today, the idea that we need to lift up the voices of women because they are oppressed, but at the same time, we don't believe there is differences between men and women. So men and women as we know, you know, like from reading the Judith Butler literature and, and gender and whatnot, the end of gender is, is going to be that there really is no difference between men and, men and women. We need to erase the boundaries so that people stop saying, oh, there's all these differences and realize we actually are one. And you can take that principle, extrapolate it, and you put it into every single aspect of life. In fact, that's also what they want to do with, uh, with adults and children. That's why pedophilia is so much in the sex literature. So yeah. there's no differences between men and women. There's no differences between age groups. There's no difference between um, man and beast because bestiality is also in the literature of queer theory. And then if you keep going down to it, there's really no difference between humans and animals or in living beings and the earth. And so everything is one and it's going to lead to a perfected society. I know that's really super duper in the weeds, but if you think about it from a religious mysticism, it all kind of makes sense. All right, it's time to talk about our next sponsor for the day, and that is Good Ranchers, American meat delivered right to your door. You guys, they have such great high-quality meat. We're talking heritage breed pork, wild-caught seafood, grass-fed, uh, no antibiotics, no hormones beef. But can we talk about the chicken? I absolutely love the chicken. In fact, the chicken is my go-to for every single day. About once a week, I take about five triple-trimmed, better-than-organic chicken breasts out of the freezer, and I thaw them out, I cook them up, and then I have them for lunch like every day that week. I absolutely love Good Ranchers and January is the month to sign up. If you have not subscribed to Good Ranchers yet, this is the month to give it a try because you're going to get free chicken for a year. That's two pounds of free pasture-raised, pre-trimmed, better-than-organic chicken, the same breast that I eat every day. You're going to get those for free for a year. That's $189 value. So go to GoodRanchers.com, use my code ALISA to get free chicken for a year plus $20 off your order. Again, that's GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ALISA for free chicken and $20 off. No, this is, this is really great because I see this concept of oneness pop up everywhere in progressive Christianity, in particular with people like Richard Rohr. Um, in fact, progressivechristianity.org uh, in their original eight points, they had that in their number one point that, you know, the way of Jesus, the teachings in the way of Jesus 
reveal to us the sacred and oneness and unity of all life. And it always, you know, puzzled me when I read that because it's so obvious to me that they're making an assumption about the way reality works, that they're they're just assuming this oneness, this unity of all life is the way reality is. And so it's Jesus that can lead us there. And, and you know, he's our guy. He's our icon that can take us to to that ultimate reality. Um, but I've this is so interesting, tracing this back to Hegel and Marx. And even I do want to cover I want to get into Gnosticism and Hermeticism. But before we do that, back to the dialectic, just to give people maybe a, a practical example that they can wrap their hands around. In your book, you kind of give a couple of those examples. And so um, an example of that, and then I'll let you comment on this, is the thesis would be race isn't real. It's a social construct. The antithesis, the antithesis, race is the most important thing about you. Right. And so and so then what would the synthesis of that be? Is that is that what has led to critical race theory, you think? Or Well, I think that we we have not yet seen the synthesis. Oh. And I think that that's part of, of of the point of it is that they're not allowed to ever say that anything is false. And so they don't mind. And Hegel didn't mind. They don't mind the contradictions. In fact, it, it's quite the opposite. They actually encourage the contradictions. So wherever you can find the contradictions, the better because that may, that yeah. moves along the process of the synthesis. And so what the synthesis is, I believe, for what you just mentioned, the race issue, the synthesis clearly is a revolution against Western society. There is a war happening now against Christianity. I believe it's it's a war to redefine social reality. I don't know mm. if, that, if that's a too deep a way to say it. They want to redefine social reality because Western civilization was built on a social reality that the physical world is real. There is a God who created it with order. And so that means there are absolutes. That's the understanding of social reality that we've been living in in the, in the West for what? I don't know. I don't know how many hundreds of years. Um, but they want to change that social reality into something new, which is a much more of a postmodern utopian idea. And the way they have to do that is to have a revolution against the system. So we have to mm -hmm. have a revolution on this race issue. So how do we do it? You create contradiction. You create frustration. You create groups of people that are angry and want to fight against each other. So what do I do if I'm arguing with you? Critical race theory is actually built on this uh, on that um, um, uh, chaos, which is race is a social construct, but it feels real. And because it's real, we need to exploit it for all that it's worth. And so if you say race, race, race is just a social construct, so I'm going to have a colorblind society, they will say that you are just as racist as a KKK white supremacist. Because no, you need to recognize the color. It needs to be the first thing that you do and recognize all of the struggles of those people because because those people with that color skin all have a a shared lived experience. So you have to recognize it at the same time as knowing that it's not real so that you can be angry so that we can have a revolution. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about the concept of binary thinking, because this is probably, you know, we're getting in the weeds philosophically, although I think you've laid it out in a very clear and easy to understand way. But for our audience, I'm sure many people watching or lis listening to this have been on social media and they're just saying something like kind of obvious and somebody will come on and call, you know, say, oh, you're just stuck in this dualistic or binary thinking. You're so black and white. And really that is seen as being very unenlightened, very immature. Right. So this this binary thinking idea. But but 
it's so interesting how this even overlaps with progressive Christianity because Richard Rohr teaches the same thing. It's He trains his audience to embrace contradiction so that he can contradict himself for the entire rest of his book, Universal Christ. I mean, it's just a book filled with contradictions. And I try to help my apologist friends, um, you know, because uh, we as apologists, we're, we're really into critical thinking. We're really into logic um, to the point where, you know, when like when I took, um, I had to drop critical thinking because I just, it was so hard. <laughs> I, I just didn't have the time to invest in in my brain working that hard in that semester. I will try again. But it's, you know, it's almost like math. The, you know, critical thinking and formal logic is is very, very binary. It is just, you know, it, it is just the opposite of where people are at today. So sometimes apologists will say, well, just show them their contradiction. Just, you know, let them see how they've contradicted themselves. And I'll say, but they don't care that they've contradicted themselves. In fact, in many ways, that's seen as mature to be like, yes, I'm embracing the contradiction. So do you, when you, where do you think that's coming from? Is that, is that coming? Is that, do you think traced back to Hegel's dialectic, that way of thinking that we see today? Yeah, I, I honestly really do. Now, now, could it be traced back even further? Of course, the, the, you know how these things go. It's always going to be in there. But most of these people um, would be proud, card-carrying Hegelian people. They would be like, yeah, it's genius. Because before that, everything was too too rigid and too like, no. If A is B, then B can also be B. Uh, also be true. Sorry. sorry. If A is true, then, then B can't be true. And they would see them as being too reductionistic and too like old school and uh, just too rigid and you're not opening up your mind. But what I also do think uh, is that of course, at least to to postmodernism, which in the end, I always tell people, if you, if you want to understand postmodernism, you have to get your way of thinking, your critical thinking. You have to pretend that you don't believe that you have to be willing to embrace the absurd. And they would write that. They would agree with that. They would say, yes, you have to be willing to, to open your mind up to the absurd because what who said that it is absurd? In other words, what's absurd could actually be social reality. Um, I wouldn't mind reading this to you from my book. Yeah. I, I quoted this in Hermeticism, and I just want to say I, I think it might even be easier to talk about Gnosticism because the word Hermeticism is something nobody's ever heard of. Hermeticism is similar to Gnosticism, but it goes back to really, I think, I would probably say third century, if I've understood it, Egyptian cult, the Egyptian occult stuff. You had Jewish Kabbalists, then you had you had Christian Kabbalists. But a lot of these ideas of hermeticism are basically, if you've ever read anything that's New Age, then you, you've basically read <laughs> hermeticism. Okay. It's just called New Age. It's, it's all basically the same stuff. But I want to write you with this, this author, McGee. He's sort of a, a, a Hegel expert. Here's what he says. I'm just going to read this from my book because I think it's going to answer the question. He says, there are varying traditions within Hermeticism, but the enduring features are summarized as this. Number one, God requires creation in order to be God. Number two, God is in some sense completed or has a need fulfilled through man's contemplation of God. Number three, illumination involves capturing the whole of reality in a complete, I, I, sorry, a complete encyclopedic speech. Number four, man can perfect himself through gnosis. Uh, for people with gnosis, that means secret knowledge. Man can perfect himself through secret knowledge or gnosis. Um, he becomes empowered through the possession of the complete speech. 
Number five, man can know the aspects or the moments of God. Moments would be more like phases of God. So as God is progressing, man understands these moments or these progressions. Number six, an initial stage of purification in which the initiate is purged of false intellectual standpoints is required before the reception of the true doctrine. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like deconstruction to me. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll read that one again. So people think deconstruction. Yeah, yeah, an, initial stage, an initial stage of purification in which the initiate is purged of false intellectual standpoints is required before the reception of the true doctrine. Number seven, the universe is an internally related whole pervaded by cosmic energies. So it's new age movement if, in, in some ways, but what they're saying is this, God <clears throat> starts out as something that we would say, um, it, it's not that God's small, it's that he is in a very um, incomplete phase. So he's a very pure, very simple. So God starts out as something simple. And then God begins to consider who he is. He contemplates himself for the first time. This is really important for your, for your audience will like this because we like things about heresies and being able to point out historical doctrines, right? So this is important because we believe that God contains a, a full knowledge of himself, right? God, God is not like learning tomorrow. Like, Oh, I yeah. didn't know. I, I right. didn't know I liked ice cream. He's not like us. Like I used <laughs> to not like ice cream. Now I do. You yeah. know, he, he's not learning about himself. He knows who he is. Well, this form of Hermeticism says, no, God doesn't know who he is. And so if he wants to know himself, he has to experience himself from the outside. And so he projects an image of himself. He emanates a projection of himself, and that is what creation is. So creation is an emanation of God's self-perception. And through that, God is getting to know who he is, and then God changes. And as God is changing, the, the entire universe is connected with God and in the end becomes one. The state becomes one with man. Man becomes one with nature. And so all this is working, and the reason it's so very important to understand for the 2020s is this. Karl Marx is a disciple of Hegel, but Karl Marx is a raging atheist. So the question is, how can he possibly be a disciple of Hegel who believes not only in God, but that man is connected to God in a way that we would deem heretical, right? Mm -hmm. So what Karl Marx does is he says, I don't believe in the God part. And I don't believe in the celestial, perfect heaven that we're all becoming one. I don't believe in that because Karl Marx is a materialist, meaning he believes that there's nothing outside of matter. So he says, you know what? I believe in all the supernatural stuff except for the celestial heaven and God stuff. There is nothing else besides the earth. So the earth has to become celestial heaven. Mm. And that can only happen as man becomes evolved. In other words, man has to become God who is evolving and continuing to know himself. And the only way that man can enter into this revolution is to overcome the darkness of this world. And who is the darkness of the world? The oppressors, the rich, mm. the people who are in control. And so yeah. for Karl Marx, a revolution against the rich is not evil. To, to, to go and burn down a rich person's house is not evil. You are actually aiding in man becoming a superman, becoming his own God. You are actually hurrying up the, the, the kingdom of man, basically. You're hurrying up the celestial kingdom of man on earth 
by committing a violent revolution against the oppressors. That's the reason this is so important. All right, it's time to talk to you about our next sponsor for the day, and that is Carly Jean Los Angeles. I love CJLA. It's a great company. It's a Los Angeles-based clothing company that makes really cute clothes for women in all phases of life. If you're anything like me, you hate going to the mall and trying on a bunch of jeans and tops just to come home disappointed. I have loved everything I have bought from CJLA, and part of that is because I can go on the app, I can go on the website, and see women of all shapes and sizes try the clothes on, and it's just so wonderful. I, I The shirt that I'm wearing today is from CJLA. I wear it all the time. So if you want to check them out, go to carlyjeanlosangeles.com and you can use my code ELISA for 20% off your first order. Again, that's carlyjeanlosangeles.com. Use my code ELISA for 20% off your first order. Man, I have so many thoughts, but I want to just maybe comment quickly on Gnosticism. And then I want to, I want to, what you're describing, John, sounds so much like what's called process theology, which is very popular in progressive Christianity. And process theology, I mean, I don't know how you could put it completely simply, but it basically denies that God is unchanging, immutable. You know, God is learning along with us. He's growing. He's changing. Um, and that's that's a very popular uh, way of approaching theology in progressive Christianity. But, of course, there's an overlap there with Gnosticism as well. Um, you know, Gnosticism is—, is there's different streams of there was different streams of it, and it's to me it was very hard to understand. I read Irenaeus's Against Heresies, and I'm just thinking, my goodness, there's so many components to this thing. But what a lot of scholars have said, you know, you could really boil it down to is is just that what saves you is this secret knowledge. It's you know the knowledge, the gnosis, is what saves you, and so that's why in the Gnostic Gospels you'll have Jesus giving secret knowledge to people, and if you read the Gnostic Gospels, you're going to get access to this secret knowledge that is really what saves you. And um, it does sound like, isn't it? It's just like everything kind of overlaps all on itself. But you touched on something a few minutes ago that I want to I go there if we could. And that's how this all relates to sexuality. Because I think that for a lot of Christians, we're seeing some really, really obviously horrific stuff being approved of in our culture. Um, you mentioned pedophilia. Of course, if you lower the age of consent, it's technically not quote unquote, you know, pedophilia. So it's children's rights. It's this and that kind of thing. And we are seeing a lot of this come into our culture. But I remember you saying to me when you were writing this book that it was just such a dark, it was, it was very dark to have to do a lot of this research and read a lot of the things that are in the literature. And what a lot of people, I, I hope we all understand, is that what's in the literature today makes it out into the world tomorrow. And so what's being written in academia and all these things. And so to maybe maybe talk about that a little bit, um, because I know, like, for you, it was really dark to have to do some of this research and read some of the things that grown adults are saying is not just okay, but good, morally virtuous things that have to do with sexuality. Mm. All right, I'm going to try to touch on all this as quick as I can. You mentioned Irenaeus or Irenaeus, however you say that. Yeah, uh, I'm not um, sure. Ag- We're musicians. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I always call him. I I always say it wrong. But whoever that church father is, that his person. book against heresies. <laughs> one of the things he's writing is this. He's saying, okay, so Gnostics don't believe that sin came came in the world because because of a um, a breaking of the law of God. Okay, so that's what yeah. that's what Christian. Um, orthodoxy teaches man broke the law of God and there is a penalty for that. 
Gnostics believe that man lost his secret knowledge. He forgot this secret knowledge. And so what people have to understand is, is Hegel is in this as well, and it plays out today. What they would say is that man actually has, in his deep, deep, deep memory, man has access to that secret knowledge that was lost all the way back then in the garden. So the reason that man sins now is isn't because we have a bent towards sin. It's not because of a sinful nature. It's not because there's anything wrong with us. It's just because we we haven't been taught the correct way to do it. That plays out into our sex education today. They they say, well, the reason is is because uh, high school students didn't understand sex, so we're going to do sex education. Well, that's because sixth graders didn't understand sex. We're gonna, Fourth graders, now they're beginning in kindergarten, explain to them gender theory. If they just understood all this stuff, nobody was sent. So it's a knowledge issue. But the reason that is so very important is because Hegel believes that man has access to help God in this evolution, which helps man in this evolution, if we just remember that secret truth that was lost long, long, long ago in the garden, right? And if we remember that secret truth, we have to we have to to express it with secret magical speech. Now think about it today. I don't I don't want to be too like one for one, one for one. But why else do you think that people are chanting slogans? They want they walk around chanting nonsense slogans all the time. Defund the police. Say her name. All of these sayings are actually a very magical belief that by saying I have white privilege that you are going to then you're going to change something in culture just by posting a black a posted a black square knowledge is changed social reality changes because i chant the phrase that really does go all the way back then now i can't remember what i was trying to say but but what i'm getting at is that part of what marx did because of hegel is to say well if you have oh process theology this is why if you have that belief down deep inside of you if it's your feelings, we I would call them your feelings or your opinions. They're just based on your own knowledge. Yeah. They they could be secret knowledge. And the only way that you can express that is through raw emotion and raw indignation. And you have to scream it at the top of your lungs because the only way to make it happen is the magical speech. Uh, and so some of this is built like raw emotion, chaos. Um, indignation. Karl Marx even says that he says indignation is our tool. Um, indignation, all of the hatred, bitterness is built into the system, and so that process theology absolutely comes in into play in this because Gnostics, you know, they believe that this physical world is actually evil, and 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 that's the difference between Hegel, who is Hermeticist, and the Gnostics. A lot of the Gnostics believe. The physical world is evil, and we are escaping from the physical world into a celestial kingdom of light. Um, The Hermeticist said, "Well, no, it's it's more like it's it's more like that. This physical world is not actually reality. They would say this physical world is more uh, illusory, and what is actually real is ideas. And so, this physical world will be shaped into oneness." with the perfect idea. He, so that's why he's called an idealist. Marx is a materialist. So Marx basically says, yeah, I like what you're saying, just not the ideas part. So that's why it, mm-hmm. it triggers into th- theology so much. Process theology says, yeah, God is figuring out who he is. His law is not perfect forever. 
It's going to be changing. And so they are clearly Gnostics. They clearly are utopian. And the last thing I'll say about this is that these hermeticists, we would call them, um, I mean, you want to take your, your most utopian concept you possibly could have. These hermeticists were far beyond that. They, they were, they, they really had an eschatological sense that, that, um, they believe that Adam was a super being. Adam could procreate on his own in the garden. He had magical speech that he could control the universe. He could control the sky. He could control the stars because the same elements in the stars are actually what was in him. So there was a oneness of connection. And they believe as we recapture our gifts from Adam, that we are going to create this world where we will control the weather. We will control everything. So it's extremely utopian. I think that that's the reason that so many Christians are hoodwinked by it. We've always been hoodwinked by Gnosticism. Yeah, no, it's really true in many ways, actually. Um, I'm curious what you think, (laughs) you know, because most people in culture who are saying the slogans and they're doing other things, they're not going this deep philosophically. They don't probably even realize how influenced they are by Mm -hmm. some of these ideas. Um, and, And... and that's where I really hope your book will help wake people up to, not just Christians, but anybody who reads it. It's like, hey, I've been chant- chanting this slogan or I've been going on board with this thing because it sounds good and virtuous and righteous and true, but actually it's based and built upon these really bad philosophies. I'm curious what you think the future of um, – as, I was, as you were talking and you talk about the whole oneness thing where really all categories just get obliterated, right? Just any kind of concrete category – the, the the sort of end goal, it seems to be, of this thing is just to break down all categories. So what do you think the future of gender is if this isn't stopped? It seems to me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that we're going to see, we're already seeing the eradication of categories of male and female. Do you think that really it's going to be that even trans will go away because trans sort of assumes you were one thing, now you're transitioning to another thing? And it's just going to all be fluid. I mean, that's kind of what it seems like. Like the because even you see that in the tra- in the in the younger communities now. I was talking to a, a college professor who he he said you know, it used to be you might have a man who's trying to pass as a woman or a woman who's trying to pass as a man, but now it's like what's celebrated is the fluidity and the combination of all of it together. So a, a man in heels with a beard, uh, with lipstick on, you just every kind of meshing together. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Man, uh, I would like to give you an. I hope you don't mind if I jump into this, but here's a. If you if you wouldn't mind, is it okay if I say something about Christian theology first and then get to that? Yeah, do it, whatever um, you want. Okay, I know we're going we're going for a long time, but the beauty of the Bible, you can't make this. The Bible answers. So the a lot of philosophers say that the biggest philosophical question there is has always been the issue of what they call the one and the many. That's right. the number one question. How are we going to deal with the one and the many, individual versus the collective? All political science is also based on trying to, to weigh the one and the many. Well, the Bible answers this question in the most radical, beautiful way possible. Let me brag on Jesus. I'll tell you what. Jesus says, in Christ, there is no male, no female, no slave, no free. There's basically, all of us are one in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. Unity, oneness. But we also know, because we have a snapshot of eternity to come, we also know that before the throne of God worshiping, there are people from all different tribes and tongues, and I, we assume that means different colors of skin. And and in other words, we are still going to be 
separate individuals in some kind of a way in the resurrected at the at the end of all things when Christ raises us up and gives us a brand new body it seems like that there are still going to be some sorts of distinctions because God has mysteriously the answer for the one and the many and it is so perfectly unbelievable and amazing and we are one with Christ Jesus and we are even heirs of his throne which blows my mind the the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ the king of kings he shares his throne with his people because we are one, but we are not God. And we should know that we are not actually Jesus. Mm. Yes, we are his body, but there is a distinction here of subservience and submission that is wonderful. The world wants a false oneness. They want a fake oneness. And so to do that, they have to eradicate all boundaries. And I don't want to give people, I don't want to get on here and be some sort of doom and gloom. I'm not all this smart. I'm not like, a futurist, and I'm not Glenn Beck or one of these people that's going to give you some grandiose vision of the future, but I will tell you, you want to talk about hell on earth. Mm. We haven't even discussed transhumanism. We haven't discussed AI. If people don't know what transhumanism is, basically all of these concepts that Hegel wants about the oneness of all things and, and all these science fiction writers for the last 100 years, we actually have the technology to make some of this happen. I mean, to some degree, now, I don't mean we can actually make a man a woman and a woman a man. You can't actually right. do that. But to some degree, we have the technology to make some of these things, um, uh, at least in an illusory fashion, reality, right? Well, well, transhumanism basically puts man and machine together. And you want to talk about frightening AI? We haven't even discussed that. I mean, right now we have, mm -hmm. we have sex robots. We have no idea what's going to happen with AI. Will there become people who live their lives literally in some sort of matrix like, you know, uh, the metaverse or something? Maybe. We just don't really know. So where do I think this is going? Yes, I think that the younger generation believes it is virtuous and wonderful to not see distinctions between men and women. That is a good thing. And so we shouldn't do that. Where is it leading I think uh, pedophilia, legalizing pedophilia is just around the corner. Everybody knows that. That doesn't take mm -hmm. a genius. I think that we will begin to see the normalization of bestiality over the next 10 years, at least to some degree. And then I have no, no idea what it's going to mean in terms of transhumanism and AI, what that will mean for the legality of sexual relationships. Um, and the only reason I'm mentioning sex is because, as you know, every single idolatry ever involves ends up involving sex yeah. every cult show ever ends up involving yeah. sex every cult yeah. leader ends up having a harem of people he's sleeping with for some reason ever since the biblical times idolatry and sex has always been intertwined that's what the bible teaches so it could be very dark the church has to begin to be vigilant and i think that we've had too many leaders that have thought that in order to be loving i'm going to give the, i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in order to be loving in order to seem that I'm not just this old, rigid, pure, you know, Puritan, witch-hunting, heresy-hunting, meanie pants, I'm going to say, I actually do know what you mean. This non-binary thinking is good. There really are some great areas, and we should be open to that. And um, if I had a dollar for every church leader I've talked to in the last three years, and I've said, you need to watch out for that because they just said they believe in, you name it, whiteness, systemic racism, critical race theory, Christian nationalism, every single time 
I've been met. These are people that I know, by the way, people mm -hmm. that love me and they know that I love them have said, John, you don't know that that's how they define those words every single time. And they've had a complete lack of curiosity about what those people do mean when they use those mm -hmm. words. They don't want to find out. They don't want to know. They just don't really care what enemy comes into the gates. It seems it can't possibly be true, but that's what it seems like. So the church has got to become hyper vigilant. Mm, love it. All right. Where can people get the book and anything you want to talk about that you're working on and where they can connect with you? The only place to get the book is my website, johnlcooper.com. Unless you want a Kindle version, you can get that at Amazon. Unfortunately, it's my physical is not up there yet. Go to johnlcooper.com, get the book. Other than that, I'm not really working on anything else, but I wouldn't mind saying two more things about the book, just so people understand. The book is philosophical. It is academically deep on these subjects, but every chapter starts with a story that you will relate to. It's a story. Uh, it's a page from my life talking with my church and, and talking with a friend about systemic racism. And I'm, and I'm asking him, what can I do to make life better for um, people of color? You know, what can I do? Where can I spend my money? What can we do to help families? And, and, and my friend says, all you can do is say, is say your privilege. Do you believe in white privilege? And I say, well, I don't really believe in privilege theory, but but I'm ready to, to do what it takes to help educate. No, you can't do any of those things until you admit your privilege. Most everybody has had some experience like that over the last yeah. three years and everybody will relate to it. And so what I want people to understand is, yeah, it gets into the weeds, but you will relate to the stories and it will, it will I hope, answer those questions for you. Very good. Well, I want to thank my guest, John Cooper, for coming on the show today. If you liked this episode, if you found it helpful, please share it with your friends. You can share it on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all the places. It also really helps if you leave great reviews on audio platforms like Google, Apple, Spotify. It, it kind of triggers those algorithms to get this into the news feeds of more people. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. So pray for me and I will pray for you No turning right or left will make it through The road that's narrow and the gate that's small Don't give up, it's gonna be worth it all This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.